On the glittering streets of Las Vegas, ruthless gunmen overpower defenseless victims and haul away a motherload of cash. Following a trail from exotic dance clubs to the tranquil suburbs, authorities finally put down the reckless robbers. But a daring jailbreak leads the FBI to a violent showdown with a man so desperate that he'll risk his own family to get what he wants. Vegas, a gang of robbers target an ATM repository and hit the jackpot. They take over a million dollars in cash, the largest heist in Las Vegas history. I'm Jim Kallstrom, former head of the FBI's New York office. The robbery was well planned and precisely executed. The FBI and local police struggled to identify and track a desperate criminal whose tendency for violence turned a robbery into a case of murder. Las Vegas, a gambler's paradise, where even criminals sometimes try their luck. On the night of December 21st, 1998, a Las Vegas couple and their 18-year-old sister-in-law prepare to go to work. The family owns a janitorial service that cleans commercial buildings. Suddenly, two masked gunmen rush up and force them inside their own van. For the cleaning crew, an ordinary workday has just become a night of terror. The gunmen blindfold and tie up their three captives. They can hear the gunman talking to a female accomplice on a radio. The gunman seemed to know the janitor's routine. They drive around until 11 p.m., the time they are scheduled to begin work at the Bank of America building. The gunmen even park where the janitors routinely park Let's their van. The building is Bank of America's central ATM repository in Las Vegas. Cash from 1,200 automated teller machines, often totaling more than a million dollars, is delivered there each night. The gunmen force the janitors to use their key card and access code to unlock the door. This bypasses the bank's alarm system. The gunmen release the couple and order them to clean the building as they normally would. 
They keep the wife's sister hostage to ensure the couple complies with their orders. She is dead. You hear me? She's dead. Act like you're clean. Get out! Now! Get out! At 11.30 p.m., an armored car arrives to pick up the night's cash deposit. Following a standard security protocol, the two guards first call the bank security company to ask if there have been any unauthorized entries. Uh, we're checking out the parking lot, don't think. The alarm company reports that the only people inside are the janitors. The only vehicle the guards see in the parking lot is the janitor's van. Inside, everything seems completely normal. The janitors are too terrified to say anything. The life of an 18-year-old girl is at stake. The guards open the vault containing $1,088,000. Shrink-wrapped and ready for pickup. Suddenly... As the gunmen disarm the guards, one of them accidentally discharges his weapon. The bullet ricochets off the floor and hits one guard in the chest. One of the guards calls for an ambulance. My partner's down. He's been shot. I need an ambulance. Quick, please. Please. FBI Special Agent Henry Schlumpf arrives at the scene. He heads the investigation. Everybody was very scared. And, uh, you know, it took a little while to calm everybody down and to get a story as to what exactly happened. And the descriptions that we got, because the subjects were masked, were very general in nature. We were looking for two males who were either white, black, or Hispanic, uh, six foot, six foot three, and about 200 pounds. That was basically all the description that we had. With little to go on, every detail is important. The janitors told us that when the subjects first entered the bank, they were a little taken aback at the number of video cameras that were in the bank. That indicated to us that they had not been inside before. This suggests that the robbery may not have been an inside job. Agents interview a truck driver who witnessed the robbers leaving the depository. The truck driver was making a late night delivery to a nearby store. He saw two men run out of the depository and throw some bags in the back of a white Chevy S10 pickup truck. And they just took off in that direction. Authorities begin searching for the getaway truck. 
I put out uh, the announcement for all responding units to look for a white Chevy S10 pickup truck. It wasn't very long after that the vehicle was found about a quarter of a mile from the depository, just parked on a residential street. Investigators run the truck's plates. Ironically, the truck is a police maintenance vehicle that was stolen from a Las Vegas Metro police lot one week earlier. Investigators begin questioning neighbors, including a woman whose home is closest to where the truck is parked. She hadn't seen anybody get out of the pickup truck, but earlier in the evening, there had been another truck parked in the same place. And she described that as a white GMC Dooley, which is a pickup truck with four wheels on the back axle. Agents believe the woman saw the robbers switch vehicles, a common M.O. for bank robbers. They issue an APB for the white GMC truck. Hours later, they receive the welcome news that the wounded guard has undergone surgery and will survive. The next day, the bank determines that a total of $1,088,000 has been stolen. To date, it is the largest bank robbery in Las Vegas history. Although FBI agents believe this was not an inside job, they cover all their bases by interviewing the armored car guards and all bank employees. We didn't have a lot to go on. We ended up interviewing everybody who worked at the branch and everybody who worked at the armored car company and polygraphing some of them. Although agents do not find any new information, they do rule out the employees as suspects. Thank you. The subjects who committed the robbery could have found out everything they needed to find out by following the armored truck around and following the guards around. And we surmised early on that that's probably exactly what they did. With the investigation running out of leads, executives from Bank of America and the armored car company decide to offer a reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the robbers. Agent Schlumpf advises them on how large the reward should be. And I said $50,000, which was quite a lot for a bank robbery, but we were going to need to generate some public interest in this case. Agents ask local authorities for their cooperation. We notified the airport that we were looking for someone carrying large amounts of money. Uh, we notified all the jails uh, to advise us if anyone tried to bail someone out with large amounts of cash. A week after the million-dollar robbery, the FBI receives a call from security at Las Vegas's McCarran Airport. They got a telephone response from someone asking if large amounts of currency would set off the metal detectors. And they took the number down on caller ID and gave it to us. Investigators use a reverse telephone directory to find the caller's address. Agents set up surveillance on that address, a home in the suburbs of Las Vegas. There were people going in and out of the house about every half hour. Someone would arrive and someone else would leave. But it's curious and... You know, I kind of like to know what's going on. After several hours, agents decide to interview the people in the house. Hello, how are you? I'm 
Investigator Davis with the Las Vegas Police Department. This is Special Agent Reed. Uh, it was just a uh, piano teacher who was giving half-hour lessons, and uh, she was going to be uh, going to Utah with uh, about $3,000, and so she had called McCarran Airport to find out if that would set off the detectors. The lead is a dead end. Agents are back where they started. But later that day, a woman responding to the reward poster calls the Las Vegas Metro Police. She claims to have key information about the bank robbery. So tell me about this stripper friend of yours. Mom, my name's Jennifer. The tipster tells agents about a dancer she knows who works at a local strip club. Oh, fuzzy bottom. You know, over on table. Her name is Jennifer Arden. She says Jennifer has been spending a lot of cash lately. He was able to give us a telephone number. We traced that number to a rented trailer. The FBI sets up surveillance on the trailer. Agents watch for any clue to the identity of the two gunmen or the location of the stolen million dollars. In a matter of minutes, a white GMC truck pulls into the driveway. It's the same make and model the robbers used as their getaway vehicle. Agents run the license plates. According to the Department of Motor Vehicles, the truck is registered in Las Vegas to Timothy Blackburn. driver enters the house and leaves minutes later. The surveillance team immediately notifies Agent Schlumpf. The sighting of the GMC pickup gave us enough probable cause to get a warrant for the trailer. Moments later, a SWAT team surrounds the trailer. To serve the warrant, we brought a lot of people with us because we knew we were looking for armed and dangerous subjects. They had already shot one person. We knocked on the door of the trailer and nobody answered, so we kicked the door open and served the search warrant. The SWAT team finds one man in the trailer. He identifies himself as Riley Bates. He reveals that Jennifer is his girlfriend. One team of agents begins searching the trailer for evidence, while another heads to the strip club to question Jennifer. FBI, I'd like to ask you a few questions, please. About what? You've been spending an awful lot of money. The exact dancer told us that the money was her money that she had made over the past four years dancing, and that she didn't know anything about a robbery or anything else. Back at the trailer. Agents continue to search for clues. In the bedroom, they find a heavy-duty combination safe. It looks brand new. Yeah, the trailer was filled with trash, and it was not the kind of place where you would expect anybody with any money to be living. And yet here they had this brand new safe they had bought. What's the combination? Riley claims the safe belongs to his girlfriend, and only she knows how to open it. Agent Durham, I help you? 
Jennifer. What's the number for the combination of the safe and the safe? The agent asks Jennifer for the combination. It's not my safe, it's my boyfriend. But she says Riley has it. Do you hear that? She said she doesn't know what the combination of the safe is. The safe belongs to her boyfriend. So we go back to Riley Bates and tell him that his girlfriend said he had the combination, so then he told us the combination. Yep, that's it. Inside the safe, the FBI finds $50,000 in cash and bags of marijuana. Riley insists that he made the money by selling marijuana and claims he knows nothing about the robbery. Agents strongly suspect he is lying. But with over a million dollars missing, where is the rest of the money? Las Vegas, December 1998. A team of violent bank robbers shoot an armored car guard and flee with more than a million dollars. A tip leads the FBI to a rented trailer and a brand new safe containing $50,000. Jennifer Arden, an exotic dancer, claims she earned the money dancing. Her boyfriend, Riley Bates, says he made the money selling marijuana. Now agents must find the rest of the money. Over a million dollars in cash. The FBI calls in one of their top interviewers, Special Agent Brett Shields, to try to get the truth from Riley. We tried to remove him from his comfort zone and took him out to my car where he's a little bit more on edge rather than at the comfort of his own home. Riley Bates was a shifty little guy. He knew he was in a, a tough position because we'd found the money in the trailer. He, he tried to maintain that it was profits from the marijuana that was found in the safe. It wasn't believable that uh, he was that successful and he's still living in a single wide trailer. We had gotten convinced that we can help him out on the marijuana charges and he doesn't want to get tied up into the, the million dollar bank robbery. He said, I didn't commit any robbery. So now Agent Shields and I know, you know, we're probably about two questions away from finding out who did. So we said, okay, Riley, you didn't commit the robbery, but I believe you know who did commit the robbery. And he said, my brother Robert and his friend Tim. My brother and his friend Tim. Really? Yeah. Well, where is Tim right now? I don't know where they are right now. Riley claims that he doesn't know where his brother Robert is. Where are they? But I don't know where they are. But inside the trailer, agents find gaming chips and receipts from the Luxor, a casino on the Las Vegas Strip. So we sent a couple agents to the Luxor, and they contacted management, and sure enough, Robert Bates was staying there. The hotel's head of security tells agents that Robert Bates has been spending heavily, paying for everything in cash. That's located where, sir? That's in the southeast town. You see the types of items that they're purchasing? Judging from his guest portfolio at the Luxor, Robert Bates had been just partying constantly since the night of the robbery. The two agents stake out Bates' hotel room until he returns. I'm going to 
he was on some kind of drugs. There's no point in trying to interview someone uh, if they're if they're stoned on whatever he was on. Inside Bates's hotel room, agents find drugs, a gun, and five thousand dollars in cash. With nearly a million dollars still missing, agents now concentrate on the second suspect named by Riley Bates, his brother's friend, Tim Blackburn. We set up surveillance on Timothy Blackburn's house. So we had police and FBI agents surrounding the house. They decide to approach Blackburn, but proceed cautiously. He's been investigated for armed robbery in the past and is considered highly dangerous. Tim Blackburn was about 26 years old, six foot three, 230 pounds. He was a martial arts expert, and he liked uh, fighting, and he liked guns. He was an accomplished marksman. The FBI's criminal apprehension team moves into position. Special Agent Castle Nishimoto is a member of this elite tactical unit. My job was to watch the streets. I knew he was armed, uh, but I wasn't particularly scared at that point because... I felt confident that I would be able to spot him and from where I was watching. The agents were just approaching the house to make contact with the people inside. When a car comes driving down the road, the SUV suddenly accelerates towards the agents. The driver loses control. And the vehicle stops and a man jumps out and runs away. We assumed it was Blackburn who had run out of the car. He was uh, jumping the fence, uh, the walls in the back of the house and so forth, and trying to get away. And so from that point on, uh, we began to search the area. The driver of the vehicle is Blackburn's sister-in-law. Authorities take her into custody. The FBI and Las Vegas police launch a house-to-house -house search for Blackburn. blocks away, a canine unit picks up the fugitive scent. Blackburn was found by a canine unit hiding under a deck in someone's backyard. He had a mask and he had an ankle holster. Fortunately for the canine officer, the holster was empty. Blackburn had lost his gun jumping over fences. Investigators searched the suspect's home while agents questioned Tim Blackburn and his wife Sophia. They offer Blackburn a reduced sentence if he will admit to the robbery. You don't see it? It's not here. He refuses. Investigators continue to search the house. An evidence response search is very methodical. It's not just everybody running around to where they think something might be hidden. Uh, everything is photographed first, and then the search progresses room by room, and then the outside is usually done at the end. 
they find some flex cuffs like were the same type that the janitors had been bound with and they found some walkie-talkies and some other surveillance equipment backyard they find several duffel bags inside the doghouse I just couldn't believe that he put the money in the doghouse uh, and then on second thought I thought well maybe that might not be a bad place to put the money since nobody looks there it's just an innocuous place investigators recover more than nine hundred thousand dollars ninety percent of the stolen money took about 10 hours to count it. So by 4 o'clock that afternoon, we knew we had the money from the Bank of America robbery. The U.S. District Court charges Tim Blackburn and Robert Bates with bank robbery, kidnapping, carjacking, and using a firearm in the commission of a violent crime. They are held at the North Las Vegas Detention Center. But the FBI's work is unfinished. They believed that Blackburn and Bates were not working alone. We knew that there was probably someone else involved in the robbery, that it was too much logistically for only two people to do. You know, your husband was Agents suspect Sophia Blackburn might be involved because her story does not seem credible. I was at the house several times to talk to Sophia Blackburn. Sophia claimed to have no knowledge of the robbery, and in fact, uh, she provided an alibi for Tim Blackburn on the night of the robbery. She said she was with him the whole night. She couldn't account for the money that they found or the other items that were in the house. She was worried because her husband was in jail and she had two young daughters to raise herself. So she was claimed to be cooperative, but she would have these stories that were in no way even close to plausible. But that's what she was going to stick with. And, you know, there was not going to be really any way to talk her out of them. There was no way that she was ever going to give us any information that would implicate Tim Blackburn. On August 11th, 1999, seven months after the million-dollar robbery, Sophia visits her husband in jail. You can't tell him where I am. She secretly uses a tiny tool on her keychain to loosen the screw securing the divider window. It's good, so my babies are doing all right. As the visiting room guard leaves to escort a prisoner. Blackburn removes the bulletproof glass. Blackburn climbed through the window and dived into the sally port. The one door closed and the second door opened before anybody realized what he had done. As soon as the second door opened, he was just climbing over everybody in the sally port and he ran outside. Sophia retrieves a gun she had hidden earlier and tosses it to Blackburn. All the alarms are going off and guards outside knew that there was a jailbreak. 
as the Blackburns try to get away. They face startled guards in a violent shootout. August 11th, 1999. Timothy Blackburn, accused of the biggest bank robbery in Las Vegas history, breaks out of jail with the help of his wife, Sophia. FBI Special Agent Henry Schlump. They tried to, to arrest Blackburn, but he shoots at them. This pickup truck that's sitting in the lot was going to be his escape vehicle. But the guards are returning fire. Blackburn is forced to abandon the truck. Suddenly, his wife Sophia roars up in an Isuzu rodeo. In a matter of seconds, they are out of range. It was hard to believe that Blackburn had actually escaped from the jail because although a lot of people, a lot of people want to escape from the jail and many attempted, very few actually get away. But it just pointed out again how unpredictable Blackburn was. Looking for leads, FBI agents Henry Schlumpf and Brett Shields tracked down the suspect's relatives. Blackburn was going to have to go someplace to get some help. Agents check out an apartment building where Blackburn's sister-in-law lives. Parked out front, they find the same Isuzu rodeo used in the jailbreak. They run the plates and discover it belongs to Blackburn's wife, Sophia. We see the truck in the parking lot. So now our heart's racing just a little bit more. The adrenaline's pumping. Since he was in federal custody, it falls under the U.S. Marshal's jurisdiction as well. So I called some Marshal friends of mine. We're sitting on this truck, not knowing if he's going to come out, back out to this truck, and we're going to have a confrontation right there before the Marshals get there. After a few tense moments, U.S. Marshals arrived to help FBI agents raid the apartment. But Blackburn isn't there. Agents ask the fugitive sister-in-law where Tim Blackburn is. She says she doesn't know. They ask why Sophia's Isuzu is there and not her own car, which authorities know is a Nissan Pathfinder. She claims it's in the shop, but her story does not check out. Agents suspect Blackburn is on the run with her Pathfinder. Can you tell us where it is? No, I have no idea where it's at. For the next week, the FBI searches for Blackburn, his wife, and their two little girls. They come up empty. Then, nine days after the jailbreak, a Las Vegas police helicopter spots a Nissan Pathfinder parked in the desert family of four is nearby. The FBI and Las Vegas police arrive in force. Now we have no shot. Special Agent Castle Nishimoto leads the FBI SWAT team. We were located on a ridge line uh, quite a bit above them and there was a valley between us. We can see some people about half a mile away too far away to identify them. If law enforcement tries to move any closer, they will have to move through an unprotected open space. 
We gotta keep our distance from these people, because if it was Blackburn, he is a marksman. Nevertheless, Agent Slump daringly volunteers to drive down for a closer look. It did take some courage, because the only coverage he had would have been the snipers. And they had at least three or four hundred yards shot, as I recall. Agent Slump gets nearer. He can finally make out faces. I could recognize that it wasn't Blackbird. It wasn't anybody who we were looking for. Authorities have hit another dead end. But Agent Slump also realizes that authorities cannot continue to respond on such a massive scale. There must have been a hundred vehicles in this valley. All the SWAT vehicles and evidence response team vehicles and police cruisers. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, we, we can't be doing this every time someone says Tim Blackburn. I mean, nobody's got the resources and we're going to burn ourselves out. The next night, law enforcement pursues the dangerous fugitive with every available resource. We had about 40 agents, police, marshals, Henderson Police Department, detention center people. We got everybody together, and we divided up into teams. And what we were going to do was interview every one of Blackburn's associates, search every house, find every vehicle that he could possibly have access to. U.S. Marshals tell the FBI they have spotted the fugitive. We arrive right as they're taking down uh, what they believe is Tim Blackburn. I could tell right away it wasn't Tim Blackburn, it was his brother. His brother is a younger, slightly smaller version of Tim Blackburn, very similar in appearance. As we're IDing him, what we notice is that his driver's license was brand new. He had just gotten it the day before. So we asked him, well, what happened to your old license? Blackburn's brother claims he lost his license. But agents suspect he gave it to the fugitive to use as a fake ID. In the car, agents find a note from Tim Blackburn. In it, he asks his brother to get him some money. A man who once had a million dollars in his possession now needs a loan to survive. We decided to arrest him for uh, aiding and abetting a fugitive. So that's what we did. We arrested Tim Blackburn's brother. Authorities also arrest Blackburn's sister-in-law for lying to federal authorities when she said her Nissan Pathfinder was in the shop. With two of his family members in custody, agents develop an ingenious plan to lure Tim Blackburn into the open. In Las Vegas, a violent bank robber breaks out of jail with the help of his wife. After three days of eluding authorities, agents decide to turn up the heat on the dangerous fugitive. One of the people we wanted to talk to that night was a close friend of Blackburn's who worked as a bouncer at a local gentleman's club. Most people who knew Blackburn either liked him or were afraid of him. 
and neither opinion was really conducive to providing information to us. His friend was really no exception. He didn't want to tell us anything, but eventually what he told us was that Tim Blackburn had called him at the time he was escaping. Blackburn had called up and said, I'm out, I'm out, and this friend could hear the sirens and stuff in the background. You're the last guy that we know about. So I told this friend, you are the last person who Tim Blackburn talked to that we know about, and I think he's going to call you again. And when he does, we want you to tell him that we've arrested his brother and that the people who have assisted him are going to have to pay for what they did to help him. This putting pressure on Blackburn was an effort to try to get him to realize he couldn't really escape, to, to get him to turn himself in wherever he was at. The next morning, this friend called me up and told me that, sure enough, Tim Blackburn had called him again and that he had told him that I'd arrested his brother and his sister-in-law. And, uh, you know, I asked him, what, what did Blackburn say? And he just said he was mad. Two and a half weeks after the jailbreak, FBI agent Henry Schlumpf learns that Blackburn may have returned to Las Vegas. I got a phone call from a Las Vegas SWAT officer. He had just met someone who gave him some information regarding Blackburn's whereabouts in Las Vegas, which to my mind was doubtful. I doubted Blackburn was in Las Vegas. But I told the, I asked the officer to ask this fella if he knew the names of Blackburn's daughters. And sure enough, this informant did know the names, so at least we knew he did know Blackburn. The informant claims Blackburn is staying at a motel that caters to long-term guests. Agent Schlumpf and two Las Vegas SWAT officers rushed to the location. You seen these two before? The manager says he's never seen the Blackburns before and they are not registered at the motel. Still, Agent Schlumpf decides to rent a room so he can surveil the facility. SWAT officers call in the license plates of every vehicle in the parking lot. None of them are reported as either stolen or owned by any of Blackburn's relatives. The motel tip is beginning to look like another false lead. The FBI does not give up. They begin checking every apartment. So what we decided to do was to perform a ruse. We would have a... Uh complex security guard just start knocking on doors and uh, notifying the residents of uh, noise complaints. I'm there watching and the door opens and Sophia Blackburn comes out to talk to the guard. I couldn't believe it. There she was. She looked happy and smiling and well-rested better than I'd ever seen her. She did not look like she'd been on the run for 17 days. Suspecting that Blackburn is hiding in the apartment, Agent Schlumpf calls for immediate backup. The criminal apprehension team in Las Vegas SWAT arrive within minutes. So 
SWAT responded right away. More agents came, and a lot of patrol units, marshals came. And what we did was we started evacuating the complex. Every apartment was evacuated except, of course, for the one where we thought Blackburn might be. And then we did what we do in 99% of our fugitive cases. Our criminal apprehension team placed a call into the apartment. I need to talk to Timothy Blackburn. What they do is they tell the person in there, look, we know you're there. You're surrounded. There's no way that you can get out. So come on out. We just want to find a nice, peaceful way to end this whole thing. So I'm waiting for Blackburn to come out, and I'm deciding, you know, where are we going to take him, back to the jail he escaped from or to a different facility? And that was my mindset. You know, if he was in there, he was going to come out. But he doesn't. Agent Sloan, he wants to The uh, apprehension team person was on the phone, and she says he wants to talk to you. Hello, Tim. And sure enough, it was Tim Blackburn. And my job was just to keep him talking on the phone, because as long as he's talking on the phone, he's not shooting anybody. When I first started talking with Blackburn, I was kind of commiserating with him, telling him, you know, it must have been hard uh, being on the run for the last three weeks. Hey, I uh, took the kids to San Diego. Have you ever been so here he was maybe slow. ten minutes from Mexico. And uh, he didn't go there. He came back to Las Vegas. Agent Sloan cannot understand why Blackburn has returned, but is even more concerned that his children may be with him. Why don't we? Uh, why don't we just talk about? Then his worst fears are realized. He hears the two little girls laughing in the background. There's children inside the room. Repeat. There's children inside the room. A SWAT team set up outside the apartment, and they were there to initiate a hostage rescue if Blackburn turned violent and started hurting any of the people in the apartment, Sophia and their two little girls. He says, Henry, I I don't suppose you can just let us go. And, you know, I told him, you know, you know I can't do that. I'm not going back to jail, man. I'm not going back to jail. Look, I don't want my kids to visit me in jail. Tim was set on not going back to jail. He he said he just wasn't going to go back. And, you know, after shooting a guard, I mean, there's no way any of that is going to go away. Schlumpf worries that Blackburn may be suicidal. Hey, Tim, you know, it's time to come in, buddy. Authorities now face a dangerous scenario. A hostage barricade situation involving an armed man, his wife, and two small children. Look, I'm not going back, man. That's just it. I'm not going back to jail. I'm not going back. The FBI and police SWAT teams surround a motel just off the strip in Las Vegas. A violent bank robber has barricaded himself inside one of the apartments. Tim Blackburn is armed and emotional. Inside the room with him are his wife, Sophia, and his two daughters. FBI agent Henry Schlumpf tries to talk the desperate man into surrendering. Come on out. Although negotiators are present, 
Blackburn refuses to talk with anyone but Agent Schlump, who months earlier had arrested him for bank robbery. I'm not going back to jail, man. I don't want my kids to visit me in jail. Agent Schlump pleads with both Blackburn and Sophia to let the children leave the apartment. Sometimes I talked with Sophia and sometimes with Blackburn. It seemed like maybe we were getting a little farther ahead talking with Sophia, but then when we take a break and she talked to Blackburn, we kind of have to start over again. He had a lot of influence with her, I mean, because he's her husband. She was afraid that if she were to leave with the children, that Blackburn would kill himself. And, you know, she certainly didn't want that to happen. We'd take breaks, and then I'd call in again. You know, there were highs and lows. Sometimes it seemed like we were making progress. Other times, you know, we took a couple of steps backward. So, Henry, what's the best place to shoot myself in the head, huh? He asked me what I thought would be the best place for him to shoot himself. And I told him that we had a lot of other things that we could talk about and try to work out before it came to that. How are the kids doing? Blackburn says he put his daughters in the bathtub to protect them. For their own protection. But the SWAT commander is concerned. Confining them could also be the prelude to a murder-suicide pact. SWAT team prepares to blow the door in case they need to rescue Sophia and the children. The SWAT team placed a explosive charge on the door, an entry charge, to be able to breach the door very quickly uh, if they needed to. After four long hours of negotiation, to go clear to the back, into the bathroom, to try and rescue the children. And uh, in this case, seconds, fractions of seconds count. They got there just in time to see Blackburn falling down from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. They find Sophia dead. Both the children have been shot in the head and are barely alive. I saw them running very quickly to try to save the children. The SWAT team got them to the paramedics, but they died in their arms. I felt uh, quite, quite saddened that my fellow uh, SWAT uh, officers tried their best and uh, yet wasn't able to save the children. Our mission was to save lives, and we were not able to accomplish that. It's just devastating. It was like the worst possible outcome. The coroner later determines that the shots that killed Blackburn, Sophia, and their two little girls were all fired by Blackburn himself. 
a few months later in federal court in Las Vegas. Riley Bates and his girlfriend plead guilty to possessing stolen money. Because of their cooperation, they are sentenced to only a year. Blackburn's sister-in-law is sentenced to one year for lying to federal agents and impeding their investigation. Robert Bates pleads guilty to bank robbery and is sentenced to 24 years in prison. Today, Agent Henry Schlumpf has made his own peace with the tragic events caused by Tim Blackburn. He's ultimately responsible for everything that happened. He came back to Las Vegas uh, to do exactly what he did. He came back to die. I don't think he was going to ever come out of that apartment or let anybody else come out of it either. Las Vegas law enforcement will never forget the deaths of two innocent children. For them, the Blackburn case is all about lost hope and the tragedy of a desperate agenda.